You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the ever-merciful, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Friday, the 2nd of December, 2022. The time is 4.03 p.m. And you're listening to Daniel Zia live from the South London studios of Voice of Islam with a live edition of the Drive Time Show. We shall be talking about two things today. Uh, we will start off with um, a, a good a discussion and several guests are lined up for that um, on slavery and talk about whether slavery is something which is a thing of the past or is it something which is actually uh, unfortunately has survived even thrived in the um, in the last few years and uh, and then uh, from five o'clock onwards we shall talk about um, a slightly different topic but a very important one actually we shall talk about ego um how important is our ego to us how what is what does egotism actually mean and how does it display itself in the modern world so please do join us in these discussions this is a live show the number to call is 0208687 you can also tweet us at voice of islam uk right so today is the international day of abolition of slavery a 2nd December marks the date of the adoption by the United Nations General Assembly, uh, a convention for the suppression of the traffic in persons and of the exploitation of the prostitution of others. This was Re- Resolution 317-4 of 2nd December 1949, 73 years ago. However, is slavery something that we have left behind? Reports suggest that currently 50 million people in the world could be victims of modern slavery. And the number of people in slavery has risen significantly in the last five years. So let's talk today about, um, as we look at the history of slavery, and let's ask ourselves, what have we learned from the past and how do we tackle the modern day issues? And um, we have now on the line to talk to us more about this, Justine Carroll, who is Executive Director of Unseen. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Drive Time Show. Thank you very much for having me. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Justine. Oh, absolutely a pleasure to have you. So, Justine, firstly, how do you define modern slavery? How How is it different from what people understand by slavery when when they look at you know movies and uh of of the old yeah that that's a great question and it's one of the questions that i get asked quite a lot so the slavery that we're talking about today in its simplest terms is abuse and exploitation of one person over another and quite often it involves profit um and there's very little chance of prosecution for the perpetrators but you know, terrible human rights outcomes for the victims. Um, And what we saw 200 years ago with the transatlantic slave trade is obviously people um, openly being held in shackles and in slavery. What we see now is much more coercive. It's threats to people's, um, you know, physical well-being. 
um, it's threats to their families, it's making people and coercing and forcing them into working or criminal activity, domestic servitude and also sexual exploitation. So uh, the number that I just read out, about 50 million people, do you think that sounds about right? Well, that's another great question. I mean, we we genuinely don't know. I mean, mm. these baselines are estimated in terms of what's happening across the world, but it's quite it, it's quite conceivable that um, you know we have 50 million people in some form of modern slavery throughout the world, and it is not only developing countries; it is Western countries as well. Um, and we need to raise awareness of these issues so that we can prevent more people from getting into situations where they are abused and exploited. Right. So, if if you look at this issue. Uh, Justine, then what, what do you think is at play here? Is it uh, is it the master slave attitude? Do you think it's it's the mindset that has not changed? Uh, what is what is lacking in our approach? Well, I think it's a lack of understanding. And you, you, with your first question, quite rightly pointed out, what is slavery? What does it look like now? And I think many people can't conceive that we have individuals that are in these situations. But unfortunately, we have too many people who are very happy to prey on vulnerable people. And I think the, the, the fact that anyone can be a victim because anyone can become vulnerable, I think is something that we need to bear in mind. Um, and those who are particularly vulnerable, and it could be uh, simply that they are looking for a better life or they might be homeless, they might have a drink or drug problem. Um, but we also see issues like war and unrest or climate change, in fact, creating vulnerabilities where um, communities are forced and displaced out of their um, homelands and are actually trying to find alternative ways of surviving and supporting themselves. And so vulnerabilities are created in many different ways. And as I said, it's unfortunate that we do have people who are very happy to exploit those vulnerabilities for their own profit and gain. Would you go so far as to say that uh, in some ways then the refugee crisis that we have here uh, and the reasons that crisis exists uh, are quite similar to uh, to slavery, modern day slavery? Well, in some circumstances, absolutely. We see, you know, the issue of trafficking and modern slavery being mm. very much conflated with smuggling. Um, you know, so we talk about small boats coming across mm. the, um, you know, the English Channel um, and that all of these people are trying to game the system, which is just not true. Many of them are persecuted. Uh, many of them are exploited, um, you know, by leaving their, their home country. Um, and actually what we need to, to do is to hold the government to account in terms of supporting vulnerable people who do arrive in the UK um, and that we have legal routes for them to, to be able to claim asylum where that's appropriate. Um, and so we know that um, a lot of those vulnerabilities play out in many different ways. Um, and all we're asking for is that people are treated as human beings and that we are able to identify and support those who are victims of modern slavery and exploitation. Does it exist in the UK? 
Absolutely. I mean, we think that the uh, true scale of it in the UK is is in excess of 100,000 people. Mm. Um, we run the UK-wide Modern Slavery and Exploitation Helpline, which is open 24-7 and available to anybody who wants help or support. But the calls and contacts that we're getting in 2022 are now more than um, any other year since we opened our doors in 2016. About 10,000 contacts we're likely to receive uh, just in 2022 alone. Um, And things like the cost of living crisis that we will see ramping up in 2023 with more people needing access to food banks and other types of support we do think that those vulnerabilities will increase and there is more chance that there will be um, extended uh, abuse and exploitation of individuals who are in difficult situations. So when you do receive a call, how do you help? So we we take in calls, as I said, that's confidential and independent and um, we have trained advisors who will take information, whether that's somebody who's in a difficult situation themselves or whether that's a member of the public that wants to report something that they've seen concerning, um, as well as working with all statutory agencies, including businesses as well. So we'll take that information in, we will assess it, identify what the situation is because it's not always a situation of modern slavery. It could be um, lower level labour abuse or we we sometimes get domestic violence reported, kidnapping, lots of different issues that come up. Um, But we will put people in touch with support services on the ground where they live. We can make referrals if they want to the police or other authorities where that's appropriate. Um, But we work on the side of doing no harm. So we always work with the consent of the individual and and we never report to um, the authorities where that is something that would be detrimental to the individual. So, for example, uh, we don't have a connection with immigration and enforcement because uh, we want to make sure that individual is safe and well and that we can do everything we can to get them out of the situation where they're being exploited. Given that our police services are already overwhelmed, what sort of response do you usually get from police when you do report uh, um, somebody who needs help? Well, we, as you would understand, we get lots of different uh, responses to the um, information that we provide to the police. But generally, mm. they are very good at taking on board the referrals that we make through the Modern Slavery and Exploitation Helpline. So we do have a good connection with police forces across the UK. As you quite rightly mentioned, resources are tight and they're probably going to get tighter um, with some of the the moves that the uh, government will be making about austerity again. So we are really concerned that we need to keep up uh, pressure on the police and on other authorities to make sure that the people who are most vulnerable and who are likely to be or are being exploited have access to the support services that they need and that they can actually be identified whether they're in contact with a local authority or whether they're in contact around their own health through um, the NHS or whether they in fact need help and support from the police. And and that's what we do. We facilitate conversations and we advocate for people who are vulnerable to get the help and support that they need, whether that's uh, support services or whether that's through one of the statutory agencies that I've just mentioned. So Justina, the work that you're doing is absolutely amazing. I mean, there's, there cannot be two things about it. Uh, however, 
what about the root causes, addressing the root causes that you mentioned, you know, disparity, uh, poverty, war, um, uh, displacement, all of those issues. Do you do any advocacy with, with the government or with the powers that be to address those yeah, another great question. You know, we, we don't want to be on the treadmill where we're just continuing to pick people up and try and put mm. them back together and, um, you know, move them on in their lives. We do need to address these root causes. And there are some systemic issues um, that unless we, we tackle those, we are never going to, um, you know, be able to prevent people from being abused and exploited. But that's why a lot of the work that we do at Unseen is very much around prevention strategies, working with the UK government, working with governments overseas, and crucially working with businesses, because businesses have um, the resources, they have the ability to address these situations sometimes on the ground when we're looking at issues of forced labour and child labour, not just here in the UK, but across the rest of the world as well. So that's definitely an area of work that Unseen um, is very much focused on working with others within the sector to ensure that the UK government and other governments are taking this issue seriously and they're actually addressing the risks that mean that more vulnerable people can be prevented from entering a life of exploitation. How big a problem do you think modern slavery is compared to other uh, myriad other challenges that we have today? Yeah, I think it is a significant um, issue because of the uh, the scale of it. You know, we, we've talked mm-hmm. about 50 million people a- across the globe um, and actually it, it prevents people from moving on in their lives and, and finding a better life for themselves because they are completely... Um, you know, controlled by by somebody else. Um, so, so I do think it's a significant issue. Um, and like I said, it affects every single country and every single community. Um, you know, here in the UK, we see many, many different nationalities of potential victims who are affected by this. But we see lots of British nationals as well. Um, and so, it's not something that's seen, you know, as only a migrant issue it's very much an issue that is ingrained in the way we live our lives and um, you know unless we tackle it head-on we are always going to be picking the pieces up so can you help me understand uh, justin you you mentioned a british national why would a british national not try to approach the police directly because again it's about the psychological controls it's Mm. about Mm-hmm. Uh, these individuals will target those with vulnerabilities. So if you're homeless or you have a drink or drug problem or you have a mental health um, issue, then you can be targeted and, you know, um, the threats of violence will prevent you from going to the police. So we see lots of individuals and young people in particular being targeted by criminal gangs. Once you're embroiled in Um, that situation it's extremely difficult for you to get out and if you are faced with threats of violence to your family as well as to yourself then you're less likely to want to go to the police because quite often those criminal gangs will know where you live and so you know you do have a very real fear of that threat being carried out so it's a lot around psychological controls rather than physical controls um, you know, in terms of the, the types of slavery and exploitation that we see here in the UK. And that's why no community, no national is, um, you know, um, 
not able to to kind of remove themselves from the situation. So I think we just need to be aware that any nationality, any member of any community could end up in an exploitative situation. Can you give us an example of uh, uh, maybe one or two examples of some recent cases that uh, that you would have come across here in the UK, obviously, uh, while maintaining their anonymity? Yes, definitely. So um, we've had um, a number of situations involving um, workers who have come in on um, agricultural seasonal worker scheme visas, um, and they've had to pay a lot of money to get the job um, and to get the visa and also the, the travel arrangements. When they get to the UK, there's no work for them or very limited work. They've raised a debt in their home country and now they are in debt bondage um, and they are in a very, very difficult and precarious situation. Mm. So we're working to raise awareness of this with the UK government and other um, organisations to to make sure that we don't have people who are in that type of situation. Other situations we see are related to construction sites. So we had a particular individual that came uh, to work on a construction site um, and was having a large deductions taken from his wages um, and he was not able to go anywhere else. He'd had his identity documents or he hadn't even provided identity documents or proof that he could work in the UK. So again, these types of issues are consistently being raised and, and these are areas that allow an individual to be exploited because once they either work outside of their visa requirements or they are um, working with somebody who is actually wanting to exploit them and is taking money from them, again, because of their vulnerability, it's very difficult for them to get out. Um, and finally, a, a different type of case, we look at criminal exploitation, um, young people being, um, you know, uh, conscripted into a, a criminal gang. They're forced to run and sell drugs. They think if I do it once, then maybe the gang will leave me alone. But we've had countless young people under the age of 18 who have got into this type of situation. Um, you know, they're forced to go and sell the drugs outside of their hometown or city um, and then return with the money. Um, and the gang is obviously putting all of the risk on that young person and taking all of the profits and that young person then is embroiled in a life of criminal activity and it's very very difficult for them to get out of it these agricultural seasonal workers uh, scheme and um and the construction workers so when these these people are imported uh, are you then suggesting that the the government's visa process is not fit for purpose well we've got some significant concerns around the um agricultural um, visas that are in play at the moment. Mm. We know that there is a labour shortage, um, but we also know that there is now every time we we come up with a solution, there is an opportunity for somebody to exploit. So although paying for a job here in the UK is illegal, it's illegal to um, you know ask somebody to pay to get a job, um, it's common practice elsewhere. But what we're finding is that the, the kind of debt bondage that uh, accrues as a result of people borrowing to pay for their visa, borrowing to pay for their travel arrangements, borrowing to pay to, to get the job in the first place, means that they're, they're extremely exposed. So the visa regime with only um, you know workers being allowed to come into the UK for six months at a time, um, when we've got a labour shortage and we need those workers, um, they're, they're creating a big debt 
at a time when they're not able to pay that back because a six-month visa will not give them sufficient income to pay mm. back several thousand pounds to the person who facilitated the job in the first place. And uh, where would you say most of these victims um, come from? Which countries? Well, like I said, we, we have over 100 different nationalities and I think over 50 different nationalities now have um, utilised the um, seasonal worker scheme. Wow. Um, so again, it's not just one particular mm. country. So um, it's very difficult to be able to to address a situation when it, it moves so quickly sure. and we've got so many different individuals, communities and countries affected um, by what's happening. Have you seen the requirement for workers go up after Brexit? Well, it's interesting because after Brexit, what we've found is that many of the businesses that Unseen works with and supports to improve their response to tackling worker exploitation in particular have found that they are really struggling with um, accessing labour provision for the jobs that they have. So this is in agriculture, so um, obviously farming and, and food production in places like construction but also um, in kind of logistics with warehouses and distribution centres as well. And particularly where the workers are uh, temporary or transient, then many of the businesses that we are working with are saying that they're having difficulty because um, there is a labour shortage and that's been significantly um, more of an issue since uh, Brexit. And finally, Justine, uh, can you give us, uh, our listeners, maybe some tips or, or, or make them wiser uh, to spot, uh, you know, incidences of uh, modern day slavery, which can then be reported? Yes, definitely. So I think, you know, modern slavery can happen anywhere. So we all need to be aware of this because it's in all of our communities, mm-hmm. um, on our high streets, um, you know, in our neighbourhoods. So, yeah, anybody that looks vulnerable or appears to be in a situation where there are, you know, maybe many male workers being housed in one particular house and it appears that there are lots of coming and goings, um, you know, it, it if you've got work being done on your house, if people who turn up look quite disheveled and, um, you know, like they're not being um, uh, provided for, then, uh, again, you can uh, raise a flag by contacting the Modern Slavery and Exploitation Helpline. Any of these um, areas where you think something doesn't feel right or doesn't look right, you can contact the helpline on 08000 one two one seven hundred um and the team will take the information um and assure you that you can remain um anonymous you don't need to give your details but we will follow that up and make sure that if there are individuals who are vulnerable that we can actually help and support them justine carl it was such a pleasure to speak to you thank you so very much for joining us you've certainly made me wiser i'm sure you've you've made um our listeners wiser as well today. So thank you for your time and have an excellent Thank you for your opportunity. Have an excellent weekend. Thank you, Angie. Thank you very much. So that was Justine Carroll, who is Executive Director of Unseen, talking to us about really all aspects of modern-day slavery. Uh, How do we define modern-day slavery? How can we spot modern-day slavery? What are the issues? What's uh, happening behind the scenes? Uh, uh, What help is available? So, um, yeah, that was it was really 
a pleasure to speak to Justine um, here. Right. So we are talking about modern day slavery, um, and and this is a live show. Lines are open, so please do call us at zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight if there's something that you may have spotted, or if there's something that you want to add to this discussion. If you agree, or if you disagree with what we're trying to say, please do um, call at uh, the number, which is again zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight, and you can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Um, so as was. Um, um, mentioned by Justine, modernist slavery is really all around us, often hidden in plain sight. People can become enslaved, making our clothes, serving our food, picking our crops, working in factories, working in houses uh, as cooks, cleaners, or even nannies. Um, and victims of modern-day slavery might face violence or threats, be forced into inescapable debt, as Justine mentioned there, or have their passports taken away and face being threatened with uh, deportation while they're under that significant, uh, significant amount of debt that they would have taken in their home country. Let's talk uh, some more now on this uh, with Declan Henry, who holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in Education and Community Science and a Master's of Science degree in Mental Health Social Work. Uh, Declan is an author of several books. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A warm welcome to The Drive Time Show. Hello, good afternoon to you. It's a pleasure to be on. Uh, it's a pleasure to speak to you, sir. So Thank firstly, um, Declan, let, let me ask you, I mean, I was just looking at um, uh, at your profile, at your website, actually. I mean, you, you've written books about very diverse subjects, such as, you know, bipolar, and you've written about refugees, and um, uh, you've, you've now written, uh, your latest work is around gypsies. So what inspires you? I suppose I, I, well, I like contentious uh, subjects. I like subjects that I can get my teeth sunk into. Hmm. I like doing research. I suppose I like debunking myths and miscon- uh, misconceptions about people and, and, and putting this, the record straight about a lot of things that people, you know, have very mixed or very um, confused views about. So, yeah, that's what that, that, that was really has made me a writer. And that's that's what that, that, that that's the force that drives me, basically. So tell us more about this book that you wrote, um, uh, Young Refugees and Asylum Seekers, The Truth About Britain. Yes, I mean, this this book was written two years ago, but we did it. We did a briefing note. The publisher, uh, my publishers did a briefing note quite recently. Um, and I don't know whether you've seen it or not, because. You, you know, the issues that, that I spoke about in the book are as relevant today as they were uh, two years ago. Nothing has changed. And probably, I would say, most of, the, most of the issues that we're talking about today, they, they were similar to five years ago, not mm. alone two years ago. And I suppose, you know, um, we did this briefing note because, you know, this year, you know, I think by the end of this year, it is estimated that probably about 45,000 asylum seekers will have crossed the English Channel to claim refuge here in the UK. I mean, that number is going up. I think I think in comparison to last year, it'll be an increase of between 15 to 17,000. And, yeah, it's... Um, I suppose this year as well, because, you know, with, uh, you know, with that uh, proposed plan to send asylum seekers to Rwanda, you know, that, that was supposed to come into force in, in, in April. And, yeah. and, you know, that's put on hold now. And it, Thank well, God honestly, for that. It's highly unlikely that that will ever, ever 
uh, will happen and, and, and so on. So I think, you know, what I did was the briefing note was to, to remind people about this book and to, uh, because as a social worker, I've worked uh, so much in depth with young asylum seekers and refugees that I just wanted to, to recap on the story of, mm. what, of what I wrote about them. So, so help us uh, dispel some of the myths that there uh, still exist around asylum seekers um, and the struggles they face. Yes, I mean, you know, especially young refugees and asylum seekers, I mean, they're, 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 you know, it's a, it's a very difficult life for, for whatever reason to come here. Uh, it's a difficult life. And, you know, the, I work with really young people between the ages of, of 14 to 18. Uh, and, um, you know, it, 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 they go through a, a difficult time. You know, obviously I help them with housing and education, their health, and obviously helping them, um, you know, to obtain their, their leave to remain. So I knew the, the barriers of the Home Office, the long delays, lengthy delays, two, three, four years. Um, went through all the sometimes with the appeal process and it's everything is just such an uphill struggle Mm. Um, and I suppose what my book really highlights as well the various types of of asylum seekers you know the various countries that they come from um, and it's it's full of you know um, you know case studies showing the different types you know because there are definitely in this country genuine asylum seekers uh, but there are others, and we have to be really, really honest. There are some, even young people who come here, or their families have sent them here for economic reasons. And unfortunately, there are also criminals in the system and young people who get caught up with criminals, um, if you, as, in, as in modern day sla- slavery. And I'm talking particularly, um, and I'm going to be honest here, Albanians. Hmm. I think they have, a, you know, they have a bad reputation, and, and rightly so, unfortunately, because they have they have clogged up the system. You know, I think if you look at the the, the, the statistics um, in that 45,000 estimated 45,000 that will have come this year. I mean, you, you are looking at between 12 and 15,000 Albanians, hmm. um, and these are mainly young men, uh, and um, they're, they're either. They are telling, some of them will be telling the truth that they have been caught up in circumstances beyond their control, but others are are are, are here um, willingly and knowingly that they are, that they're involved in, in in criminal drug activities. Right. So, uh, what do you mind then? Is the is the is is the best way to if the majority of these are are people who actually need help and are actually here because they they've either been displaced because of poverty or or war which uh you know some of them maybe um um because the western nations have actually imposed those wars on those countries um how how do we how do we help these people i mean how how do we uh, dispel some of the uh, the myths that you know they're here to take over our country that uh uh, that they don't need any help and they're all bad. Oh gosh, you know, I've 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 met very few, uh, and the minority are, are are bad people. As I said, I work with forty to eighteen year olds, and I would say the overwhelming majority were really good, law-abiding young men. It was, it was only it was only young um, uh, males that I work with. And there are, of course, females in the system. I only work with with, with young males. They they were a joy to work with in that sense. They, you know, they, they, for whatever reason they've come here for, 
they all wanted to do well. They all wanted to go to college. They, they, they learned English. They wanted to work. Um, very few of them end up in the criminal justice system. Very few. Uh, we're, we're, I could probably uh, count on one hand uh, the number that, that, that actually get caught up in that. So, so uh, to, to say that they come here, um, they're, they're, they're really willing to, to, to study and they're willing to work. Uh, um, and, and as I said, the majority of them that I met are really, really, really good people and, and, and um, it was a pleasure to work with them. You're, you're obviously not an economist, but would you say that uh, when these people come in, they most of them do assimilate and most of them actually um, provide an economic benefit to the society? They do. They do. Uh, no, absolutely. And I mean, I mean, some of them are incredibly hardworking. You know, I've had, you know, young Eritrean boys, also, um, you know, boys from, from um, Iran and Iraq. Oh, from all over, you know, I could. Uh, they all want to, you know, um, absolutely. They all want to better themselves, and they're willing to work. They're not lazy. Unfortunately, they can be exploited. Mm. You know, there, there is an awful lot of, you know, um, cash in hand jobs, long hours. Whether it's in a kebab shop, whether it's in a barber shop, uh, or a corner shop, or wherever. Um, they, they, you know, I, have, I know several examples of, of exploitation. And it's, it's, I mean, I, I think the law shouldn't come down heavy on the young people. They, they should come down, obviously, heavy on the people that's, that's, that do, um, you know, manipulate them and, and you know, yeah. Declan, have you had any introduction with uh, any of uh, the people who may have crossed the English Channel on board? Oh, very much so, yes. Not, well, in, not in more recent times, sure. but, 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 but when I was working, absolutely, yes. So what, what do you hear from them? What motivates them to, to take such a big risk? And um, uh, why do they actually risk their lives and their, their, their family lives um, while knowing that you know, this is actually risky and people have lost their lives in the past? Well, I suppose a lot, a lot of them, you know, they, they have um, received financial support from their family to come here. Uh, because they believe this, that the UK is a good place to, to, to carve out a new life. Mm. Um, some of them also will, will have relatives here, and um, a lot of them will speak English. So there are many advantages um, for them to want to come here. So if you, if you were to look at it holistically then, um, would you say that this whole debate around immigration is a is a selfish argument that, you know, we're here and uh, um, why should we share essentially our pound of flesh or slice of bread? Uh, I think that this system has to be, you know, at the moment, you know, with the, with, and there has been for many, many years and after numerous home secretaries that have never, ever been able to clear up the mess in the home office. We need a system that actually works. You know, if somebody claims asylum, then, you know, it has to be done rather uh, swiftly, not years. It, it doesn't take years to determine whether whether somebody is genuine or not, uh, because the, the cases are just left there. It's not a, as if active investigations are going on. Their file is just left there on a desk for years. Um, so I think that there has to be a system where uh, applications for asylum are processed very, very quickly. Um, uh, criminals from countries that, that we know uh, shouldn't be here, as ex- for an example, again, Albania, I'm afraid they need to be sent back as quickly as possible. Or, or they shouldn't be allowed even entry. 
I think I think that that in in my opinion, that people from Albania should be sent back. They shouldn't even be let into the country because there's no good reason for them to be here. And obviously, there should be stricter laws on 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 weeding out the criminals as soon as possible, and again, deporting them. Declan, tell us about your latest book uh, on gypsies and, and Roma uh, travellers. Um, yes, that was a very, very exciting book to 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 write. I really call it my lockdown book. Um, it again, you know, it was as it was going out to interview um, Romani gypsies, Roma, and also travellers, and to to really you know ask them about their lived experiences. And it concentrates very heavily on racism and and discrimination because you know through every strand of their life, you know, they face daily, you know, racism and discrimination. Uh, and again, you know, as a common theme with all my books, it's, it's, it's to educate people, it's to debunk, you know, uh, misconceptions and falsehoods. And, um, it, and again, you know, to talk to the people, to get the voices of the people and their lived experiences into case studies. Um, and, and to, and again, you know, I mean, I like, you know, with all my books, I take on really contentious issues because even with the GRT communities, mm-hmm. you know, um, there are many contentious issues around, you know, them not going to school, poor health care, you know, you know, they, they, they live on average 15 years less than everybody else and housing crises and uh, and laws that, that, that really um, curtail them, you know, living out their, their ethnic, their ethnic uh, backgrounds. Uh, and so on. So yeah, again, uh, it was it, it was uh, it was fascinating for me, and I was so interested in it. And I hope I conveyed the interest that I had into the pages of the book. So tell us about some of these misconceptions about Roma people that you would have uh, debunked in your book. I, I suppose that you know that there again, you know that there is that there is this this this, this you know uh, idea that they that they, that they all uh, come here and that they you know. Um, uh, you know, uh, take over and, and so on. It's the common, you know, theme that a uh, common idea that a lot of people have that you know, if you're not British, that you you know, you, uh, you're you're a stranger and outsider that you come here to sponge. And again, you know, again that is that is so so untrue because Roma, you know, Roma people, particularly in Eastern Europe, they've had a very very difficult time, huge hugely difficult with the racism and discrimination. That they that they face there, and you know when the the, the the you know they're very grateful, very grateful that they are given an opportunity to 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 you know have a decent uh, life here, or certainly even the worst life here would be would be ten times better than some of the the lifestyles uh, and, and the trials and tribulations that they have to had to endure in in, in in you know in in some of the Eastern European countries that they've come from. So again, you know. Um, they have a good success rate of going to school, and again, you know, they, um, they, uh, m- many, many of them do uh, uh, find employment. But again, you know, unfortunately, uh, a lot of them again are exploited, uh, and that might be by by ruthless people who who you know um, seize upon their vulnerability. Absolutely, and uh, really amazing work, Declan, that you are doing. Uh, thank you. So much for joining us today. Thank you for writing those eight books, um, and thank you for all, all. for all the great work that you're doing. Uh, I mean, you're you're an inspiration, and um, really, I would uh, I would urge everybody to go onto your website, DeclanHenry.co.uk, 
and they, have a look and, at uh, and, and when books. they do, if you, I hope you don't mind me saying that sure. when they do, they'll, they'll see a very, very good book there written about Islam. Voices of I, I, Islam. <laughs> I did see that and I was meaning to ask oh, it unfortunately and have I been kind to your community <laughs> okay so so on that note Ooh. Declan actually we, we, we do have one more minute so tell us about that oh gosh you know no, I've, I've had a, a long-standing very very good relationship with with the Ahmadiyya Muslims I mean yeah your community yeah you, yeah, you really you. do you have a beautiful community and that really shines shines through in the book um, an Oxford um, a professor um, gave me feedback on the book and he said it was the, the only book that there is available that puts Ahmadiyya Muslims on par with all other Muslims. Wow. Because maybe for me, from being an outsider, I can't, you know, I, for me, Ahmadiyya Muslims are very much part of the fold. Um, there is, you know, there is no, uh, you're, you're not outsiders, you're very much insiders. And a beautiful community and I yeah I, I'll stop there really really beautiful community <laughs> Declan what a beautiful person you are um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much uh, by the You're way which, well. which Oxford professor uh, did you speak to a very well he's controversial he's eminent Dr. Taj Hargay okay right all right no I was just wondering uh, one of the ones that um, we do have a few Oxford professors on our panel and, and they do join us but uh, but I don't think I've even interviewed uh, Professor Hargay before but um, yeah amazing uh, once again Declan thank you thank you for all that work thank you for um, um, for being lovely thank you for um, uh, for all the help and all the great work and all this awareness that you do um, really it was a pleasure to speak to you pleasure to speak to you too thank you very much indeed have a lovely weekend thank you you too bye 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 so that was Declan Henry who is, has um, written eight books um, and you can uh, check out his books um, at www.declanhenry.co.uk um really um a marvelous person there uh, lovely to speak to him right let me go now straight to our last guest um for the segment Colin Ward who is a detective in uh, GMP Modern Slavery Unit assalamu alaikum peace be with you a very warm welcome to the drive time show hello there good afternoon thank you for asking me on here good good afternoon Colin no the pleasure is all ours so um you specialize in modern slavery since 2006 you've been working on this could you tell us about a little more about your work and how is it that you help people yeah i suppose um yeah I'm, I'm, as you said i'm a detective consultant in great manchester places the modern slavery unit uh and the unit itself we help coordinate our force approach to slavery uh, which is mainly working in partnership with other law enforcement agencies local authority charities etc uh, and I suppose my main roles, I suppose, are giving tactical advice to police officers on investigations. And one of the main things for me is the best practice, how to support victims, uh, which includes them um, training police officers in investigations and frontline response with that initial contact, because the vulnerabilities and safety of the victims have got to be our priority. Um, and if we get that wrong, then it can affect their life going forward. So them, I suppose my main um, part of my work have you had any successful cases? We do. Um, and I say that, we do. But, um, but we're nowhere near enough compared to how many victims there are out there. Mm. And I suppose the crux of success is often down to that support of that victim. Um, 
And initially, that includes the police officers understanding how hard it can be for victims to disclose. So success is, we often look at success in court cases, but we often also need to look at success, I suppose, in what is a good outcome for that, that victim. Um, I want mm-hmm. to get prosecutions, but we also need to see success as someone getting out of that life of abuse, control, the beatings. And a lot of the part we do that is we work in partnership to get success uh, with other agencies, like charities, like we work with Justice and Care, who've got a victim navigating our team, and they're invaluable, you know, in that navigating them up to a court case, but also that support, and it's, it's that measuring its success. But we do like court cases, but nowhere near enough. Would you say that you've seen a rise in, in these cases over the last few years? What's the trend like? It's risen enormously back since mm. I first started. Um, and I sometimes, is that, have we got more victims now than we did when I first started 16 years ago? We probably have. But I also think it's the awareness of ourselves, other agencies, the public themselves. And an example during the pandemic, you know, we, at first we thought we'd see a decline. We didn't, it plateaued and then we're still seeing that year in, year now um, increase, um, which we, we thought we were going to have problems during the pandemic with people being indoors, you know, less people able to see people, less support agencies being out in communities. Uh, but we saw an increase in mainly for things like criminal exploitation of children during this time, an increase, increase of cuckering of vulnerable adults, you know, where drug gangs take over someone's house to deal or store drugs. The mm-hmm. criminals take advantage, it's just growing and growing and growing still. Give us a sense of how many cases would you typically be working simultaneously? Um, from the, the unit I'm in, we coordinate the approach. So talking about Greater Manchester itself, um, I think we had last year over 500 um, crimes of modern slavery. Wow. So each one of them is a victim. And that, that's just, it's the tip of the iceberg. Um, so, you know, it's, it's grown to that number. That, that might not seem a massive number, but it is. It's 500 lives at least that we're just aware of, you know, with this mm. horrendous situation. What would, um, Colin, be your thoughts um, around how these cases are actually dealt with when they are actually reported to the police? Do you do you think there's there's sympathy for them in the police services? I, I, I do, I do. I think we've got a long mm. way to learn still of people's awareness of, of victims. Um, we need to we need to start to, we need to understand the officers understand the crime and why victims are scared to speak. Um, we're getting better understanding, I think, across the lines of where it crosses over to criminality and victims committing crime, but because they're being forced into it. We've also got the same in regard to immigration and organised immigration crime, where we need to understand that these victims are not... These are victims of serious crime, they're not immigration offenders. And I think slowly, we are, well, not even slowly, quite quickly we're getting there. I've seen a massive improvement over the years in police understanding of um, this type of crime. So what advice would you give, Colin, to somebody um, who might be a victim and listening to our discussion today? Um, what would be the best course of action for a, for a victim of any form of modern slavery? Yes. I suppose as a victim themselves, it's, it's, it's them understanding that we, can't, we need to be trusted. We, we're there to support them. And it might not always be that it's through ourselves as police officers. People might be scared from whatever happens mm. in their own country, something if they're from abroad, or their own dealings, whatever reason, had a negative dealing with police here. Or what people tell them, especially the exploiters, don't go to the police. You can't trust them. Don't go to them. You know, we, mm. we, we need to get away from that. So we need all people, all agencies in the public 
to help us with that because we, we want to help victims. But if they don't want to come to us, then they can they can go via the modern slavery helpline, you know. And would rather I'd rather victims if they were scared to come to us, at least go to someone else for support um, to try and get them out of the situation. So modern slavery, as you alluded as well, I mean, can take many forms. It could be forced labor, it could be sexual exploitation, it could be trafficking, it could be domestic servitude. What sort of cases do you generally come across typically? The whole, the whole lot. Mm. Um, in Greater Manchester, initially for many years, sexual exploitation was our biggest numbers. Um, labor was has grown, and I think that's our awareness of people being controlled in car washes, nail bars, you know, construction sites, cannabis farms. We see a lot of that. Their growth in recent years has been the criminal exploitation of children and the criminal exploitation of older adults. We know that the one in the background hidden a lot is often domestic servitude. Uh, we know there's more than we, we're finding out about. And we've, we're currently having some um, campaigns through Great Manchester Police, and one of them is a domestic servitude one because we know there's more victims out there. Would you say that most of these people um, ha- are imported into the country or are they... Are they British nationals? A mixture. I think the biggest figures nationally these days are British nationals, and I think that's our awareness of um, county lines, as it's called. Mm. I don't personally like the phrase county lines. It's a criminal exploitation of children, a criminal exploitation of older adults, and often they are British nationals. So we've got that. But we have still got the uh, people being brought in from abroad. Or if someone is smuggled in to the country, they're susceptible as a smuggled victim to be exploited then because of their immigration status often and the control over them. So it is a mixture of uh, abroad and, uh, you know, British nationals. And and this, um, you know, uh, the county lines um, phenomenon, do you think, again, you know, that's on the rise in the society? It appears to be on the rise, but it's, mm-hmm. again, it, it, I asked the question myself, is, is that down to our awareness? Is it, there is more victims, or have we always had that? And thinking back to my days as a police officer of many years, you, you start to think, oh, that, that probably could have been exploitation. So there is a rise of it. The, the, the economic problems in the country, we've got, you know, children being exploited, gangs will latch onto something when they see it works. So the county lines has grown and grown and grown, but also it's our awareness, I think, of us and the public. I guess I, the reason I ask this question is because there, there has been, uh, in recent years, a lot of emphasis within the police services to, to tackle county lines. Do you think that's not enough? Do you think that's not helping? And again, do you think that's, uh, again, a reflection of uh, the shortage of uh, of resources? Um, I'll, I'll always say there's a shortage of resources. Um, I'm sure most police officers will say the same. Um, but is, is that really an excuse, you think? Or do you think that's a fact? It's, it's, it's a fact, as well, but at the same time, we, you know, we need to know what we need to understand more. We're, we, we're learning as we go along. There's children out there who are being exploited. And, mm-hmm. you know, for many years we've had child sexual exploitation and we've grown to our awareness of that. It's the same now with the criminal exploitation of children in county lines. Resources are being put into it. Money is being put into it. We're shutting down more drug lines. But at the same time as we're shutting down those drug lines, we have to have in our head the vulnerability of children who are being groomed into criminality and understanding where we can support them. And it's not always police are the best people for supporting them but we need to be part of that picture and we need to signpost them to the right agencies. Excellent. Uh, Colin, uh, really best of luck with all the great work, uh, excellent work you do. Thank you so very much for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure and an education, actually, to speak to you. No problem at all. Thank you for asking me. And what, what I'll do is I'll um, 
retweet your tweets that you've done from earlier today and signpost some of the things where people can't get help and support uh, through ourselves. Awesome. Okay with yourself. Thank you very much. Now, that'll be great. Excellent. Have a lovely Thank weekend. You. Take care. Bye-bye. So that was um, Colin Ward, who is a detective in GMP Modern Slavery Unit, uh, you know, t- talking about uh, the excellent work that he does. And and again, um, I guess, you know, having spoken to, uh, to three experts in this field, uh, the consensus seems to be that, unfortunately, despite everything, um, modern slavery, unfortunately, is on the rise. And it is a challenge that all we all need to address. We are approaching the end of 2022, but it's 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 actually a shame. It's unfortunate that we we still in 2022. Uh, I started the program uh, by talking about the United Nations uh, resolution of 1949 uh, about the abolition of slavery, and we are in 2022, and and yet we have various forms of uh, slavery uh, still existing. So circumstances, people. Uh, leading them in, in, in one way or the other uh, and, and them then getting stuck in the cycle of slavery. It is therefore, I think, our responsibility um, to keep our, our eyes and ears open and become uh, a support for those people who may need us. So we've discussed various ways today in which we may be able to, uh, to help those people. Uh, we've talked about helplines, uh, and I'd like to end uh, this uh, this part of the uh, the show, this segment of the show, by um, a verse of the Holy Quran. It's from chapter two, verse one seventy eight, and it reads: "True virtue, in the estimation of God, is that an individual believes in God, spends in his cause for love of Him, on the kindred and the orphans and the needy and the wayfarer." and for freeing slaves. That uh, chapter is called Al-Baqarah. <clears throat> Al-Baqarah. That's chapter 2, verse 178. And with that, uh, I will end this segment of the show. Please do stay tuned. We will uh, have um, 5 o'clock news next. The uh, topic that we shall go into after the 5 o'clock news is about our egos uh, and um how hurting or um how damaging egotism can be so that's the topic that we shall talk about after the news break please do join us by calling us 0208-687-7878 you can also tweet us at voice of islam uk you are listening to the recording of a live show please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the Drive Time Show from a Voice of Islam. Today is Friday, the 2nd of December 2022. The time is 5.03 p.m. And we are talking about, or about to talk about, the second topic of the day, which is about egotism. So egotism is defined as the fact of being excessively conceited, or absorbed in oneself. The Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, of Islam states, Shall I not tell you about the companions of paradise? They are very humble. They are every humble person considered weak, but if they gave an oath by Allah, it would be fulfilled. Shall shall I not tell you about the companions of hellfire? They are every harsh, haughty, 
and arrogant person. This is from the book of traditions called Sahih Bukhari. So this tradition shows how important really it is for people not to become self-absorbed, um, especially Muslims, um, because it is it is directed to um, to the uh, followers of um, uh, of the Prophet, but but the wider audience as well. Why not? And to always show gratitude to God Almighty for all they have in life. Otherwise, the consequences uh, will have to be borne by them. The promised Messiah, who is the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Islam, um, he explained the definition of arrogance as follows. He stated, you may not perhaps fully realize what is arrogance. Then listen to me. As I speak under the direction of God, everyone who looks down upon a brother because he esteems himself more learned or wiser or more proficient than him is arrogant. Inasmuch as he does not esteem God as the fountainhead of all intelligence and knowledge and deems himself as something. He continues to explain, one should not be arrogant in any way neither in terms of knowledge, nor in terms of wealth, nor in terms of appearance, nor in terms of caste, family and lineage. Arrogance is mostly born out of these things, and unless man purges himself from these vanities, he cannot be a chosen one in the sight of Allah. So what are the examples of various egotistical personality types or traits. So um, you're all about, if you're all about material things, for example, everyone loves a good shopping spree. But if you place a ton of value in material objects, it very well might be your ego talking. The ego identifies with having, having more all the time and having better, and having the latest. You might not think it's egotistical to flash your latest, latest gadgets on social media, but if these things are important to you and closely tied to your identity, it definitely deserves a closer look. Uh, it could also be about a position of power that you hold. Not everyone with, with a powerful job, however, is egotistical, but those with large egos do tend to crave the attention and prestige that comes with high-ranking positions. Egotistical people often want to be the president, the CEO, the chief executive, or that, that high-profile manager. They also li live for the opportunity to boss people around because it plays into their ego's desire for power and to be better than everyone else. Um, you could also have a hard time admitting when you're wrong, and that's egotistical as well. It isn't always easy to admit when you make a mistake, having bad luck, or poorly manage your time. There's much more likely, um, you're much more likely to blame others, which may explain why you pretty much hate apologizing or admitting when you are wrong. And then you're probably also 
possibly bad at being grateful. Sometimes it can feel tough to express gratitude, but for some, egotism certainly plays a role, especially if it's been a lifelong problem for you. Egotistical people often feel that they are better than other people and therefore they do not feel it necessary to thank others for help. They also have a sense of entitlement, which can make it tough to feel grateful for the things they have or or want to achieve. In the spiritual sense, however, arrogance is considered an absolute lethal enemy to one's inner spiritual life. In his own words, the promised Messiah, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, writes, Arrogance is a most dangerous affliction. It's, it brings about spiritual death for the person in whom it is instilled. I know for certain that this affliction is worse than murder. An arrogant person becomes Satan's brother because it was arrogance who disgraced Satan. Therefore, it is conditional for a believer that he should not have any arrogance. On the contrary, he should have humility, meekness and modesty. Let me go now straight to Imam Rawahuddin Khan, who is a missionary for the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Rife Time Show. Thank you so much for having me. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So, Imam Rawahuddin, let me start by asking uh, what is ego? What is the definition of ego? to you well ego is something of course being um, an imam and uh, from a theological background um, an ego is something that is uh, mentioned over and over again in uh, the Islamic sphere right so uh, if we look at the ego the, the I uh, the self, the conscience, you know, in the Islamic te- terminology, someone who is uh, s- centering uh, himself and thinking of himself of something higher or better or superior than other, than something else or someone else. Or if someone um, is, you know, driven by uh, worldly things, um, or living an animalistic life, um, meaning that he is driven by his his feeling, his solely his nature, his instinct. I think that is uh, you know uh, the, the ego that one has um, as a human being. But of course, there are other more detailed definitions. But uh, a person sense of self-esteem or self-importance. I think you, you covered that as well. So someone that is cent- or self-centered, that would be someone who, is, who has an ego or being egoistical. So, Imam, tell us, uh, 
to what extent mm-hmm. is is having a self esteem good and at to what point and at what point it becomes dangerous or or should we or are we saying that uh no amount of ego is good no absolutely not i mean of course one should have uh, a positive i would say, i would call it a positive ego someone who is do uh, who is uh, working in a positive way with this ego so for instance uh you know we we know that from an islamic perspective um the duty of man is to bring death upon uh his uh, you know in that sense his negative ego to turn his back to devilish pride and you know one should not boast of having been reared in the in the in the cradle of knowledge but one should consider himself as you know as an as as a nothing as an ignorant person so in order to develop in life and occupy himself uh, you know in in um meekness and that is you know that sense if if we look at this kind of ego then this is a, a, a positive ego a good ego and then the light of unity you know it descends upon that person from god almighty and uh in a way he will he will get a new life a new spiritual life mm. and by killing that negative ego that ego that ultimately destroys the person then he will develop an ego that will be filled with the light of god which will be a positive one i mean usually the word ego is used in a negative way but just to explain it to to you to listen to the listener is that you know to to kill oneself to kill one's ego to develop something in yourself which is filled with meekness humility and uh, you know to to fill oneself with the light of unity so that god almighty uh you know it protects you and helps you throughout your life this is what you know we should ultimately aim for and this is what um you know i was trying to to describe as a positive positive ego um so imam rawdin this you know we live in an age of uh uh of chest thumping and um of jingoism you know overstated uh, ideas of uh, patriotism um and and what you're stating is is the exact opposite of that how realistic of is that it's very realistic i mean um looking at uh, at it from an islamic perspective hmm. it hmm. is um one of the one of the main main duties of a, of a muslim you you know you you must have heard of uh, of the jihad and that um as a muslim you have to you know you have to do the jihad and you know some people have that notion that uh jihad is just uh, fighting for the cause of islam and yeah, you know it's, it's about killing other people yeah absolutely it's about exactly. the islamic state yeah but but in fact jihad is an arabic word derived from the verb jahada which means to strive or to struggle 
And in Islamic terminology, it means to make an effort to endeavor and to strive for a noble cause. Now, the word is generally used to describe any, any type of striving in the cause of God Almighty. Now, according to the Islamic teaching, there are three main types of jihad, uh, which all seek to establish and promote peace in society. Now, there is the jihadi akbar, there is the jihadi kabir, and jihadi asfal, meaning the first one, which, of, which is of highest order, uh, is the jihad, jihadi akbar. This is, you know, uh, th- this is the most important one and the biggest one of all. And this is the jihad for self-reformation, meaning the struggle is against our own temptations, such as greed, lust, and other, uh, you know, worldly temptations. So basically, it is a journey that every human being goes through from an animalistic state of existence. Um, you know, an example, living for uh, immediate gratification or gain, uh, or, or, you know, where someone uh, is, you know, tries to uh, be disciplined enough to, to exercise his moral control. Now, this type of jihad is an obligation on every single Muslim throughout his life. Basically, to get control of oneself, as you mentioned, um, and, you know, every day we go through this kind of struggle where, you know, it is from, from the moment that our, um, that our alarm rings in the morning where, you know, we go through that struggle of following our natural instinct of falling back asleep mm-hmm. or waking up in order to gain something, right? So we wake up, we go through hardship, we go through struggle, we, uh, we kill ourselves, whether it is when we encounter other human beings that are not being just uh, and whether we, we remain peaceful. So we stop at our natural instincts of anger, of uh, you know, greed, of lust, and you know, these kind of temptations. And when we take control over ourselves, this kind of self-reformation, self-reformation is uh, getting control of ourselves. So we all go through it uh, knowingly or unknowingly, and Islam is such a beautiful religion, which is not an old religion for old people from 1400 years ago, but it is applicable to this day and age as well. And the beauty is, that it has given us uh, uh, a sense for that. It has, you know, it, it tells us why we need to do this kind of self-reformation where we kill our ego. So that ultimately, it makes us a better human being. And secondly, we become closer to God Almighty, which is these two things are um, the, the core uh, you know, teaching of Islam, which is the reason of our existence. One is that we have to fulfill the rights and views of God Almighty, and the other one is to fulfill the rights and views of our fellow human beings, of the creation of God Almighty. Both of that go hand in hand. So then, once we, once we follow these humble steps, 
that God Almighty has explained to us that we should follow, we kill ourselves, and ultimately, uh, you know, we kill our ego. And, you know, the, the, the beauty is that um, not only we become better human beings and we fulfill the rights of God, but in our society, if everyone tries to adopt these humble steps, our society becomes better as a whole. And we, you know, reform not only our neighbors, but the whole nation. Um, and this is what Islam promotes, peace in society. And that has to start with us, with our own ego. Excellent. You've touched on such an important issue, which is, uh, you know, jihad, because that's a term which is, uh, you know, branded about, uh, it's it's almost become a plaything of uh, of the Western media. Uh, so just to recap, you're saying that the the jihad of uh, the sword, uh, which is actually a jihad uh, of in def- of, uh, really um, in defense, is considered to be a jihad of the lesser order in Islam and jihad of self-reformation is considered to be, or a struggle for self-reformation is considered to be a struggle or a jihad of the highest, the higher order or the highest order. Would that be correct? That's absolutely correct, yes. Right. So um, let me sort of bring another um, um, example in. Uh, you know, hundreds if not thousands of books are written on uh, on personal development every year. Uh, would you say that working on personal development is what uh, what the bigger jihad is? Of course, that's also a part of that. It, yeah. You know, coming back to it, if that makes us a better human exactly, being, exactly right. And yeah. if that, um, if that, you know, look, the, the, even the definition of a Muslim given by the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is that a Muslim is he uh, from whose hand and tongue others are safe. And if, you know, throughout the life, if you study the life of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he taught us through his actions, through his saying, how we can reform ourselves, how we can develop in our in our duties to God Almighty and to our fellow human beings. So ultimately if if we have that goal in our mind that we want to become closer to God Almighty and that we um, want to bring peace in society by helping um, the creation of God Almighty, then yes, absolutely. But if uh, you know these uh, books and literature and nowadays, you know, videos, uh, clips on on uh, on the internet, uh, etc. Um, you know, try give you coaching into self reformation, but the goal is just to become either wealthy and rich and popular and all of that. Then no, then th- this will ultimately fail. Yes, you might become. Um, you might become rich, you might become worldly gained, you might become, you know, you have become followers, etc. and all of that. But ultimately, this is just a, a temporary mm. um, achievement. Mm. The ultimate achievement will be, as I explained before, first and foremost, that God Almighty will bless us 
God Almighty will give us the reward for it. And this is the, ble- the blessing that drives us to do all of these things. And secondly, we will create peace in society. And this is the, the, the main obligation of um, a Muslim. And without this kind of drive, you will never achieve that ultimate goal. Yes, temporarily maybe you will uh, achieve a worldly goal, but if by you know the, 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 the literature one reads and, and by following someone who is uh, showing you how to become a better citizen, by you know uh, waking up early in the morning and following certain steps mm. and killing your ego in a certain way, then it's only a temporary gain that you will have. But ultimately, the reward that we want as Muslims is from God Almighty. Sure. So to recognize your Creator and 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 then be able to help the creation, essentially. Absolutely. Right. So. Uh, you know some of these things that we've talked about you know when when you when you have money uh when you have power uh, it's it's almost natural to for you to 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 think that you're important so how do you avoid being egotistical so the holy prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam gave us a very very beautiful and simple formula he said, look at the one who is lower than you in status and has less than you. But don't look at the person who is higher than you and has more than you. This is another way of being thankful. So ideally, we should not you know, aim for something in a worldly way that we see that um, you know, or the, the, you know, someone's driving this this nice car. Someone has this house. Someone has this possession, and we aim to you know uh, to get the the same or achieve the same as this person. Okay, e- even if you do, but it doesn't stop there. Your ego again kicks in, and you know you want more and more and more. So. Instead of being um, grateful and thankful for what you have and to look uh, you know, down to someone who has less than you and be able to be thankful that God Almighty has bestowed so much upon you, you know, people are, are nowadays, um, because of that, are, are ungrateful. It's, it's very uh, prominent. I mean, even God Almighty addresses this in the Quran where he says that in Allah that surely Allah is gracious towards mankind, but most of them are unthankful. Which is you know it is it lies in the eye of the observer. Whether we see that oh and we, we mourn every day that oh we don't have this, we don't have that, or we, we go through this difficulty rather than aiming for something worldly and having a yardstick which is of a worldly measure, why not look at it from a different angle and say that, Alhamdulillah, all praise belongs to God. He's given me so much and count the blessings that we have and be thankful for it. This will give you a whole different idea or a whole different uh, way to live your life. And I'm sure 
you know, it, you don't have to be a Muslim to realize this. You don't have to be, you know, uh, religious. But it's simply by looking at the faith that, that what you already have, what you already possess, and being thankful for it means a lot. And this ultimately, you know, when we go back, and there's a famous um, anecdote which describes that someone, you know, he had... I'm just going to briefly summarize it due to time. Someone, you know, he, he had a morsel in his hand. Hmm. Now, he was looking at that, and he, you know, started weeping and was thinking how, you know, how, you know, how great God Almighty is for, you know, giving that morsel to him, which, you know, which when looked at, uh, precisely that, you know, if there was a cook that made this from food. That food was harvested by a farmer and that was sown and before that, you know, going up the ladder, ultimately this was God Almighty that provided it and it went through so many difficult uh, and so many different stages to become that morsel which he had in his hand. So he was being thankful for that. And this is what, you know, we sometimes, you know, we tend to forget as, you know, um, as God Almighty described that man, mankind is, is, you know, weak and we tend to forget. But we should, God Almighty keeps reminding us, even by, uh, you know, sometimes taking away a blessing or giving us a blessing. So at all times we should be thankful, we should be praising God even the very, in the very beginning of the Holy Qur'an, for having such a blessing, uh, God Almighty, uh, you know, the very first verse, uh, uh, after Bismillah rahman rahim it says, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, that all praise belongs to Allah, Lord of all the worlds. So that praise is again a form of showing thankfulness. Um, God Almighty, you know, He says that, you are grateful, I will surely bestow more favors on you. But if you are ungrateful, then know that my punishment is severe indeed. Meaning that if we recognize what God Almighty has bestowed upon us and being grateful for that, then Allah Almighty will bless us by giving us more. And we will be able to recognize that God Almighty has bestowed these particular favors on us. So, it, is, it lies in the eye of the observer how we see, how we look at things, um, whether we're being grateful uh, or ungrateful. So, again, uh, this is the beautiful teaching of Islam that gives us the opportunity to gain blessing at each instance of our life. The purpose of any religion, Imam Ruhuddin, is... Uh uh, is to find God, find your Creator, establish a relationship with your Creator. Would you say that it's um, uh, it's important to go so far as killing your own ego to be able to find God? Of course, um, it's very important for that because if you usually when um it's it's a very broad statement but if 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 people uh, if man um develops in their knowledge in their understanding there is also a part 
um, where he become he develops pride and arrogance because sometimes a person considers himself to be uh, more intelligent than the other. A person considers himself to be more spiritual, more advanced uh, than the other, whether it is uh, from a worldly aspect or from a religious aspect. In both aspects, you can develop pride. And that pride and arrogance and greed, which is ultimately your ego, you have to kill that in order to develop in your spirituality. Because this is also... Um, a, a, one example is that uh, the Holy Prophet uh, said that إِذَا تَوَادَعَ الْعَبْدُ رَفَعَهُ اللَّهُ إِلَى السَّمَاءِ السَّابِعَةِ That when my man or when man develops in humbleness, in meekness, God Almighty raises him to the seventh heaven. Now this is, it doesn't mean that physically sure. he will raise up, uh, you know, man when he develops, whenever he develops humbleness and meekness. No. It means that when a person kills his ego and uh, totally kills his sense of being proud and, and a pride and boastfulness, then God Almighty, you know, uh, makes him recognize in the, in the sight of God Almighty. And he, uh, you know, develops from a humble beginning to a higher spiritual status. Because, you know, heaven, when you speak of heaven, it's not a physical uh, stage or a physical uh, place where you can, you can go to. Hmm. It is... It is a spiritual space right. which describes that, you know, seventh heaven, a higher space where, mm-hmm. you know, in spirituality, this person will be elevated. As, now, as we try to explain in, in our lives as well, when we're happy, we say, you know, I'm on cloud, cloud nine today. Uh, you cloud know, nine today. Yeah. So it's, it's a metaphor for yeah. saying that someone is developing in his spirituality and God Almighty raises him mm-hmm. to that, elevates him to that status. And this is, you know, ultimately that we need to do in order to kill our pride, kill our ego. There's one particular thing that uh, we should develop in, and that is uh, to increase in our relationship with God Almighty. Only then can Mm -hmm. we truly... uh, So both of that go hand in hand. So then truly we can um, kill ourselves, kill our ego by, uh, you know, developing in our relationship through prayer. And the prime example is in Islam, the way you pray. All of the different states uh, or the different movements uh, within the prayer are um, a personification of showing humbleness. Mm when, uh, you know, this is in different uh, time eras, in different tribes, in different places of the earth, there were certain um, movements, you could say, a certain postures that, uh, you know, you would do in front of a higher being, whether it is a king, a ruler, or whether uh, in front of God. 
some people would, you know, um, hold their hands in front of their uh, chest. Some people would bow their heads. Some people would bow themselves so that they could they hold their hands on their knees. Some people would just fall down on earth and uh, rub their nose on the dirt or touch their forehead with the, uh, with the gr- on the ground. All of these things show that, you know, you kill yourself. You, sh- you show to your creator that you are nothing. And you, in that state of humbleness, you pray to God Almighty. And when you, when you realize this, then God Almighty, you know, listens to your prayer and he helps you and he guides you and he blesses you for it. So this is something that we should uh, develop in. And to come back to the question you asked, yes, in order to develop in um, the, the, the relationship, the communion with God Almighty, you need to kill yourself. You need to kill your ego. Um, and that's what, you know, the, the Holy Prophet mm. of Allah, peace be upon him, has shown us for this example. Sure. Finally, Imam Rawadin, what would you say to, what message can you give to our listeners about how they can maintain uh, a fulfilling life? I mean, I've already mentioned, you know, all these points. Yeah. But um, how would you sum them up for us? Thank you. I mean, I mean, to, to to sum them up is first and foremost to realize, you know, what blessings you have from God Almighty. I mean, in the beginning we spoke about um, your ego. So all of these things that um, that you know that you that you that you see and feel that these are things that are naturally driven where you, um, your, your ego kicks in through temptations such as greed or, uh, or lust and other uh, passions, uh, natural instincts. When you get a hold of that, when you realize that this is something that you, know, you can stop in this instance, for instance, if um, you drive, you know, everyone, whoever drives a car, and someone cuts you off, and immediately you burst out, you know, cursing, or you get enraged. So if in that moment you can calm yourself. Or in any circumstance where you realize that now a natural instinct would kick in, which will overtake you and won't make you think rationally. In that instance, if you can get hold of that, that's where you, you start killing your ego, and that's in other words, in terms of Islam, you will uh, strive, you will, um, you will endeavor uh, a, a, a jihad, right? And this is a form of self-reformation. The other thing is that whatever blessing you see, you know, being healthy, having uh, a meal in front of you, a warm meal in front of you, being able to, to do things uh, in your day-to-day life, uh, you know, these small things, we, uh, we have to be grateful for that. And once we start appreciate, appreciating that, we also start to look at those people who, ha- who don't have uh, these blessings and these opportunities as we do. So we start appreciating uh, life more and more. And ultimately, once we, do, we go these humble steps, we have to think about these blessings do not come by itself, 
but there is a higher being that provides these uh, these blessings for us. And I gave the example of Moses. So ultimately, Allah Almighty has created everything, and He has provided us with so many things, with everything, uh, which is a blessing for us. So we start appreciating God Almighty by being thankful. And, why, and God Almighty says, if we are thankful, Allah Almighty will provide us more, with more. So how do we ultimately become thankful to God Almighty? Through prayer. And by praying, we have to kill ourselves again by telling God Almighty that we're nothing and we pray to God. We, we open our hands in front of God Almighty by saying that, you know, you, you are everything and we are nothing, so please bestow your blessing upon us and thanking God Almighty for what we have. God Almighty says that when I, I feel, um, you know, I, I, and God Almighty says that I, I never return um, my man's supplication empty-handed. So hmm. he will always answer our prayers. And when we do this, when we truly kill our ego, and become thankful, then we tread on the path in which Allah Almighty says that, uh, you know, He will become, uh, you know, the eyes with which you see. Yeah. He will become yeah. the hands with which you work. He will become the tongue with which you talk. Mm. So He will become your shield. Yeah. And that is what we want. The love of God Almighty, the protection of God Almighty. Absolutely. And it has to start with ourselves. Imam Rawadin Khan, Thank you so very much for that very in-depth uh, discussion on ego, on what ego is, and how to deal with it, um, and to uh, to be able to lead a fulfilling life. Um, really appreciate your time today. Thank you so very much. Wa alaikum assalam. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you, uh, and may Allah bless you. So that was Imam Rawaldin Khan, who is a missionary for the Ahmadiyya Muslim community based in Birmingham. Um, let me now go straight to our last guest uh, for the show, who is Hannah O'Brien, uh, a certified anxiety and stress management coach. She helps people overcome their anxiety um, and other things using science-based coping skills. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Drive Time Show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, well, I can... Um, I, I share the excitement, share the sentiment. So thank you very much for joining us. Uh, tell us about your work. Tell us what do you, what is it that you do and how is it that you help people? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm a stress and anxiety coach, which is a form of life coach that specializes in helping people overcome um, chronic stress and anxiety. And I do that using stress management techniques, um, anxiety management techniques. We work on po- personalized coping skills and thought reframing techniques, as well as we'll talk about different forms of relaxation. Uh, we do a little bit of mindset work. And then I also work with uh, lifestyle changes and things like that if we're not able to get results from any of um, the normal things. So I kind of work with people on a one-on-one basis and just figuring out what it is personally that's happening with their anxiety and their stress and then helping them find solutions that work for them. Because sometimes deep breathing doesn't work for everybody or meditation doesn't work for everybody. So we figure out what works for you and what you like and what's comfortable. Right. How, in your opinion, do people start to develop an unhealthy ego and how does it start to ruin people's lives? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think when people start to get in this mindset of um, that they're better than everybody else or that they start to kind of gain a sense of entitlement or sort of impose higher expectations on people around them, it can definitely damage their relationships. And then other people tend to think they come off as more arrogant or cocky. Um, It can definitely be when they tend to find themselves being more focused on themselves rather than anything or anyone else. And that causes others to kind of feel shut out or ignored. So it can definitely damage relationships in that way. Um, we uh, as um as as people generally find a a lot of people find uh it either they're forgetful or find difficult to to be grateful. How do you think one can uh, one can change that? Yeah, absolutely. I think there are several different things that you can do if you're trying to be more grateful. I think that definitely developing a routine can be helpful in just starting, um, giving yourself permission to start, giving yourself permission to miss a couple of days, um, taking just small baby steps and setting small goals. Usually if we set bigger goals um, and we're not ready for them and we don't achieve them, then we feel kind of this um, unjustified sense of failure when we didn't really fail. We just didn't quite get there just yet. So I always encourage clients to to start small. Um, Practicing mindfulness can also be a great way to uh, become grateful when we're mindful of what we're doing day to day and we're really focused on being in the present and enjoying the things that are in front of us. It helps us have more gratitude for the things that we're trying to enjoy. Um, You can also journal at the end of your day a couple of things, maybe two or three things that you're really grateful for at the end of the day. And I encourage clients to try and think of something new every day and to really, to mean it, to really be grateful for whatever Mm. you're talking about. Um, Don't just write down things that you think you should be grateful for. Write down something that you were super grateful for that day. Um, For example, one thing that happened to me the other day that I was like, wow, I'm really grateful for that. I was stuck inside all day and I got to escape the house to go grab some groceries. And I had just this little small conversation with the checker at the grocery store. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so grateful that 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 little person just entertained my small talk for just a couple of minutes because I was so cooped up in the house and they might not even know it, but I'm so grateful for that little interaction. So sometimes just being in the moment and just finding what what it really means to you and what you're really grateful for can help you find other moments of gratitude. Um, also doing it with your family too, something that I've seen be really effective for clients that have families or little ones is going around the dinner table at dinner time and asking what you're grateful for that day or what's something, um, one thing that you were grateful for too and just kind of hearing what everybody comes up with is something thing that um, has been a really positive experience and can be really fun to do with your family. What about being grateful to other people? Um, Acts Mm -hmm. of kindness that other people may have extended to you. Um, In a lot of occasions um, or sometimes ego comes in the way uh, when you, you know, when you think about, uh, well, should I pick up the phone? Should I say thank you or should I not? What advice would you would you give to people to, to tackle that? Absolutely. Um, That's something that I've struggled with a lot myself. And I try to remind myself that if I'm getting the inkling or if I'm getting that little gut feeling that I need to reach out to somebody to say thank you, I, or to give a compliment, I should probably reach out because that feeling is probably there for a reason. And there, and then a lot of things will come up. It'll be like, well, what if I look stupid? Or what if they don't like what I had to say? Or um, what if they didn't, the thank you didn't come off right. And I jumble my words. Um, 
and at the end of the day, I, I, I think to myself, well, it's more important to me that they know that I was grateful and thankful in that moment than if I messed up and said it wrong or if it didn't come off the way I wanted it to. So I always encourage clients to, um, to try to go forward and be as grateful as possible and have those meaningful conversations, even if you stumble, even if your voice shakes a little bit, because each time you do it, you'll get a little <laughs> bit better at it and um, you'll feel it out each time. So next time you'll get an idea of, okay, last time here's how it went and this time do I, do I feel like it's needed? So just a little bit of self-reflection and trial and error can kind of help you in that area of figuring out what's best for you and what works the best. But if you have an inkling to say thank you, I would say say thank you. <laughs> go, yeah, go with the instinct, absolutely. Um, <laughs> what other ways uh, are there to, have an, um, to not have an unhealthy ego apart from being grateful? Yeah, absolutely. There's a couple of different ways that we can deal with um, an unhealthy ego if, or if we feel like we're going in that direction. Um, we can start to self-reflect is a big one. We can ask ourselves, you know, did did I, I do the right thing? Was this okay? Um, could I maybe have been a little kinder here? Sometimes just stopping and asking ourselves and kind of checking in um, is something that people with big egos don't always do. So that's a good sign if we're self-reflecting and we're asking ourselves those questions. Um, and then asking others too. There's been times myself where I've had to ask, I've asked my partner, I'm like, okay, this happened. There was this situation at work. I said this, this person said this. Do, do you think I was in the wrong? Should I have said something differently? Should I apologize? What, what do we think is the correct form of action here? Because sometimes when you're in the middle of it, you just can't see it. So I ask other people, ask a confidant or somebody that you feel confident trusting um, their opinion and say, hey, you know, I might have messed up here. What do you think? Because um, sometimes we need others' opinions and they can kind of help set us straight, especially if it's somebody that you trust to do that. So that can always be a good option too. Um, putting others first also helps as well. Mm. Um, listening more than you talk can also be a really great way to kind of separate yourself from an unhealthy ego. Um, continuing to explore yourself and continuing to self-reflect can be a, a great uh, thing as well. And then also just adapting a beginner's or a learner's mindset and just understanding that, hey, I'm a lifelong learner. I'm going to make mistakes. There are going to be things that go wrong. But as long as you know that if you make a mistake, you can apologize and you can move forward. It makes making a mistake a lot less scary and a lot more freeing. Um, and I think sometimes with when we're talking about ego, people are afraid to fail or they're afraid to make a mistake. Um, and so it can kind of hinder them in a way that's more unhealthy. Whereas if we give ourselves permission to make a mistake or to fail, we can move through it in a way where we're actually learning more from it than if we hadn't done it in the first place. So definitely kind of adapting that learner's mindset. And um, lastly, I would say just if, if you have any insecurities, acknowledging those insecurities and stop uh, defending yourself if, if, if you're uh, trying to That's a big learn one, through right? those things and move forward. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that it can be the hardest one. I think that's, mm -hmm. that one's probably the hardest is mm -hmm. to acknowledge what you're insecure about and stop defending yourself. Um, but it can be really important and it will also help you hear other people out more. If you stop defending yourself for a minute and just hear the other party out, sometimes it, it'll allow more information to come in and you can kind of recognize what's going on and then be able to take that next step and really fix it. Awesome. And uh, that's all great advice, Hannah. How do, how do uh, people get in touch with you if you need to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the best way to get in contact with me would be to go to my website. Uh, it's Hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H-O-B-R-I-E-N dot com. Um, and you can go ahead and reach out to me on there. All my contact information is on there, um, my appearances and um, just anything you could basically want to know. You can go ahead and click the chat widget in the lower right hand corner and say hi to me. I'm happy to help with any sort of questions or anything that you might have. Hannah, such a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so very much for joining us. 
Thank you so much for having me on. It was wonderful talking to you. Have a great rest of your day. Likewise, and have an excellent weekend ahead as well. So that was um, Hannah O'Brien, who's a certified anxiety and stress management coach. uh, And she was talking to us about uh, how to deal with your issues, your insecurities and and manage uh, your own ego. Uh, Some other ways to stop being egotistical. Uh, stop comparing with other people. I think this was mentioned before. If you do need to compare, compare with people who are downtrodden and below you rather than people who are above you. Um, change your views on success. Uh, in, in today's society, society, success is only measured by tangible outcomes, by a trophy or by more money or a promotion or whatnot. Uh, maybe have another think about what success really means to you. What is actually success in life. What would you count as success on your deathbed, for example? Looking back, um, practice forgiveness and letting go. The most powerful tool to learn is to let go um, uh, and and practice forgiveness. Forgive other people, uh, learn to forgive and, and forget. And then, as was mentioned uh, in detail there by Hannah O'Brien as well, practice gratitude. Take a few minutes every day to think about all the people, experiences, lessons um, that you are uh, grateful for and acknowledge your mistakes. And as you said as well, um, acknowledge your uh, your weaknesses and um, try and work on those. Let me end this show today by reading out uh, an excerpt from... Uh, uh, Hazrat Mr. Masood Ahmad, may Allah be his helper, who is the current and the fifth head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. This is uh, from a Friday sermon, sermon he de- he delivered about for- forgiveness and reconciliation on um, uh, August 18, 2017. He said, Without the grace of God Almighty, one cannot rid himself from the disease of inner self and ego. Nor can one without his grace become truly established on the oneness of God. Simply uttering there is none worthy of worship except Allah cannot make one a believer in the unity of God. It is essential to consider Allah the Almighty as the most powerful being and the one who is truly worthy of worship. Only then can one abstain from employing different worldly ploys and means to usurp the rights of others. Thus, the essence of this extract of the Promised Messiah, he said, is that one who does not fulfill the rights of others does not make an effort to seek reconciliation and does not end his enmity with others, does not truly profess belief in the oneness of God. This is such a point that if we understand this, then we will become those who shall always lay the foundations of reconciliation and peace and will also enable us to fulfill the rights of others. Therefore, every one of us needs to understand this and assess themselves. Otherwise, there will be a state of great concern for us if we claim to profess belief in the oneness of God, but our practice is completely contrary to it. The promised Messiah, peace and blessings may peace uh, be upon him, has outlined the various methods to discard shirk or association of partners with God in his book, The Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam. 
there are various methods of how one can and should refrain from shirk or the association of partners with God. In regard to one of these, he states, refraining from inflicting physical pain on anyone and becoming harmless and behaving peacefully. And with these words, we will end the show. Um, this was your host, Dhani Alzia. We talked in the first segment about modern slavery. And then in the last hour or so, we've talked about how to eliminate your ego and how important it is for your own peace, for your own inner peace and societal peace that you eliminate your own ego as well. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the show, please do go into SoundCloud and listen to it and you will probably um, gain from it. Thank you very much once again for joining us and uh, we shall be back with another edition of the Drive Time Show on Monday. Until then, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you.